Happy National Postal Worker Day! Welcome to the fifth episode of the What Happened Today in History podcast. Yay, we made it! Mm-hmm. Sorry we weren't able to upload for the last few episodes. Yeah. We were pretty busy and finishing up uh, school, but now we should be back on schedule. Mm-hmm. Okay, so today's episode is full of surprises, and it's one of my favorites, I think. Yeah. And um, I hope you guys enjoy it. Yep, okay, so you can start off. Okay, so I'm going to be talking about, um, since today is National Postal Worker Day, I'm going to talk about postal workers. Okay, yeah. Okay, so on July 1st every year, we celebrate National Postal Worker Day. And it is a day to recognize and thank the thousands of postal workers that manage to deliver our mail, even the most treacherous working conditions. Yeah, like when it's hailing and raining, yeah. you still have to deliver it. Like lizards. Yeah. <laughs> okay. To celebrate, here are some facts about postal workers. So one, on average, postal workers walk four to eight miles per day. Like, isn't that crazy? That's insane. I feel like I struggle running one mile. Yeah. <laughs> um, even with all the weather conditions and physical effort it takes to deliver mail, postal services deliver packages with a maximum of eleven pounds. Oh my, that is yeah. heavy. Mm-hmm. And the most surprising delivery was the package of a small child being shipped from his parents to grandparents. They were only a few miles away from each other, but they like did that. And the child fit under the weight limit of 11 pounds. And they did this for over a year, shipping the child back and forth. Is this even legal? <laughs> no. No, because oh. now, after this... Uh, after, like, this happened, mm-hmm. services put regulations on what you can put in your delivery orders. So you cannot yeah, I don't ship think children that's... anymore. Yeah. Unfortunately. <laughs> Sorry to crush someone's dreams. Yep. So. <laughs> okay, your turn. All right. So, in 1867, Canada was merged by three British colonies. And it was a newly formed country and was self-governed. But it didn't have, like, full independence. So it wasn't completely, like, a sovereign country. Yeah, yeah. And it took over 150 years for the country to gain independence, but every year on July 1st, Canada celebrates this day for its formation. And Queen Elizabeth II proclaimed on April 14th, 1982, that it would be wholly entirely independent. So that's when it like kind of like officially became independent. Mm -hmm. And until 1982, it was celebrated as Dominion Day to commemorate the day it became self uh, governing okay but um now it is known as canada day so like uh you can just be like happy canada day <laughs> and also a fun fact is oh canada became canada's national anthem in 1980 and became effective on july 1st as a part of the celebrations on that day so if you lived or are living in canada happy canada day <laughs> <laughs> okay so i'm gonna be talking about the world bank Wow. On July 1st, the World Bank was founded during the UN Monetary and Financial Conference, which is more commonly known as the Bretton Woods Conference. And the World Bank was created from the idea of a better global economic system. Um, It originally gave out loans to countries specifically in Western Europe, but not just Western Europe, after World War II. And it helped reconstruct the post-war countries and played a major role in financing investments in infrastructural projects in developing countries. Uh, cool. So, like, they helped with, like, like probably, like, electricity, like, that type of stuff? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, like, dams, electrical grids, irrigation systems, sewage systems, 
roads, and airports. And um, now the World Bank is the world's largest development institution, and it works with the UN, and there's 189 countries that are involved with it. Wow, that's a lot. And it gives out loans to developing countries. Cool. Yeah, cool. Okay, your turn. Okay. In 1908, SOS was officially made the International Distress Signal. And we obviously know that, yeah. but uh, a long time ago, like, no one really, like, knew. It was like a new yeah. thing. So this three-letter signal was chosen because it was very easy to read and easy to write in Morse code. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was also later suggested that it could stand for, like, save our souls or save our ship. But it was more for, like, the distinct sound. Yeah. And actually, we both know some Morse code, but we only know from, like, letters A through H, I yeah. think. Yeah. We're still so, learning Morse code. Yeah. But well, it's so far fun. Yeah, so it's really cool. If you want a hobby, that's kind of fun to do. Yeah, and just in case, I think SOS is three dots, three dashes, and three dots. Mm-hmm. Anyway, it was made on October 3rd, 1906, but formally introduced July 1st, 1908. And the first time, like, it was used in an emergency was June 10th, 1909, from, like, someone on a ship. So it was about, like, a year later when, like, they started using it. And two people did receive the signal and helped rescue the person. And about two to three years later, the Titanic even used this signal when the ship was sinking. Mm -hmm. And, like, like like, the Titanic, like, the people also used, like, the older distress signals because they also, like, trusted those a little more. But so they used the newer ones and the older ones. Okay. And it took a long time for maritime stations to adopt the signal, but soon now, like, everyone knows it. Yeah. Now it's kind of, like, not, like, common sense, but you learn a lot about You hear it a lot. Yeah, you can, like, like SOS, like, yeah, you just yeah. know it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I'm going to go. Yeah. Okay. So on July 1st, 1863, the beginning of the Battle of Gettysburg took place in Pennsylvania. Oh, wasn't that battle in, I believe, the U.S. of War? Yeah, it was actually. And Ooh. it's considered the deadliest battle in the United States of War. And more <gasps> than 50,000 soldiers died in the three-day-long engagement. Oh my. Yeah. So um, just to catch anyone up that is unfamiliar with the Civil War, it was a war against, and, okay, so this is, like, one side, mm-hmm. the Northern and Pacific states, and they did not support the use of slaves as forced labor, mm-hmm. and they were against the Southern states who supported the idea of using slaves as forced labor on their farmlands. Yeah. And the Southern states later made the Confederate States of America, which quickly fell apart and was never seen as a sovereign country. Yeah. And Okay, so I'm going to, like, do a little role play here. I'm going to just, like, say everything. So, okay. the war had been going on for two years, and after several wins on the Confederate side, General Robert E. Lee decided to, take, decided to head north towards Gettysburg and get another win in hopes that if his men won another battle, then Northerners, which are also called, like, they're also called, like, the Yankees, Ooh, okay. um, would withdraw from the war, and that would cause, like, his side to win, the Confederate side to win. Yeah. Okay. So, when word of Robert's plan reached Pennsylvania, most residents left really quickly, like all the families left quickly, mm-hmm. and it left the area deserted. <gasps> yeah, I would leave too. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so at first the Confederates outnumbered the Yankees, but on the second day, the Yankees outnumbered the Confederates. And oh, wow. uh, so in the end, half of General Lee's men were either killed or injured, <gasps> and his men oh, retreated. Um, 
And both sides took major losses. It's not just like a really like lopsided win and yeah, lose. Yeah, it's pretty like They're, equal. They, they both, both lost, lost a lot. Yeah. And it was actually a huge turning point for the Union, like the Northerners. Uh-huh. And it lifted spirits from their victory because they've been losing like a little bit more than, um, you know what I mean? They've yeah, been yeah, losing yeah, for a while, yeah. but this was like one of the big victories. Yeah. But they uh-huh. still and both lost yeah, a lot. Yeah, they both lost a lot too. And so the Union ended up winning the war two years later. And now millions of tourists and visitors uh, go to Gettysburg to honor the brave soldiers who lost their lives during that battle. Wow, we should go there. Yeah, actually, um, I went there on a field trip a long time ago in, in like, elementary school, so. Oh, really? Yeah. Cool. Okay, your turn. Okay, so, in 2014, David Greenglass died at age 92, and he was an atomic spy for the Soviet Union who worked on the Manhattan Project, and basically, um, the Manhattan Project was, like, research and development during World War II, that produced the first nuclear weapons. So, and that project was led by the U.S. and supported by the U.K. Mm -hmm. And so David's sister-in-law, Ruth Rosenberg, recruited him and his wife into Soviet espionage, and Greenglass uh, started to pass nuclear secrets to the USSR via a Soviet official in New York City. And... So, David Greenglass was arrested by the FBI and quickly implicated or involved Julius Rosenberg, who was also a spy, and his brother. So, he basically, like, betrayed him or stabbed him in the back. Are these his siblings? Yeah. Oh, my God. He just, like, stabbed him in the back. Oh yep. And he was sentenced to 15 years in prison, but uh, only spent nine and a half years uh, because, like, you know, like, when you act good in, um, like, prison, you follow all the rules, like, you can get yeah, out a little early. Yeah, you can get Yeah. And he, after that, he reunited with his wife. And later, he admitted he lied under oath about the extent of his sister's involvement and, like, brother for the protection of his wife. Which well, is cool. Cool. Yeah. Okay. All right, well, I'm going to go next, mm-hmm. and I'm going to be talking about Princess Diana. So, yeah. Diana, Princess of Wales, was born on July 1st, 1961, Ooh. and she was part of the British royal family and was the heir apparent to the throne. Oh, yes. So, she is also the mother to both Prince Williams and Prince Harry, and mm-hmm. she was considered the people's princess and was an oh. extremely popular and well-liked member of the royal family. Yeah. Yep. So she was born in Park House near Sandringham, Norway, and had a great education and had a particular interest in music, specifically piano. Oh, and, wow. Cool. Yeah. And she worked as a teacher until officially announcing to marry Prince Charles in 1981. Mm-hmm. So she cool. uh, divorced Prince Charles in 1996 and unfortunately passed away in a car crash in Paris. Aww. So the accident was like the accident made international headlines as she left behind her two sons at the age of 15 and 12. And her oh, funeral Lord. was held at Westminster Abbey and 2000 like people attended like live in person mm-hmm. and about 2.5 billion people watched worldwide making it one of the biggest televised events in history. 2.5 
billion. Yeah. Oh and there's my. like seven billion people in the world. Like yeah, now. that's like yeah, but like oh. that's insane. So, but in recent news, Prince Harry and his wife Meghan Markle welcomed their second child, Lilibet Diana Mountbatten Windsor, named mm. after both Harry's mother, uh, Diana, her middle name, and uh-huh. Queen oh. Elizabeth II. And Lilibet, her first name, is the Queen's like nickname. Oh, that's so really cool, cool. right. Yeah. Okay, um, in 1997, Hong Kong was formally transferred to China after being governed by Britain. And so, basically, Britain returned this territory because the British lease on the new territories, or, like, so-called new territories, Mm -hmm. which um, made up most of Hong Kong, expired after 99 years. And under British ownership, Hong Kong became a metropolis and the commercial gateway to the east, and China, like, wanted it back. So it took years of negotiation, but the UK was willing to give it back as long as China kept the island's capitalist ways. And so they regained their control after 156 years of British rule. Mm-hmm. And obviously, it probably, like, raised many questions whether the territory was able to maintain a stable economy but it has developed from a backwater in the 1950s to a wealthy working economy like now. Oh, cool. Yeah. Huh. That okay. was just a fun little one. So, um, I'm going to go next, and I'm going to be talking about North Korea and South Korea. So, in 2018, for the first time in a decade, North Korea and South Korea opened up a maritime communication channel. Oh, my. Yeah. So, North the North Korean patrol boat responded immediately when the South Korean Navy contacted them via international radio station. Ooh. So, this is seen as a gradual step forward in healing the relationship between both countries after uh, agreeing to cease fire after a three-year-long active war in 1953. Mm-hmm. And both countries agreed to meet at the DMZ, or Dillon demilitarized zone which is the border between north korea and south korea like a little before this happened uh-huh. and just to understand just to understand what the dmz is like um former u.s president bill clinton called it the scariest place on earth oh my yeah i would be yeah i would not go there. like nothing like, there's no like violence there but it's, it's still just, like like yeah. the tension there that's so, insane yeah. Okay, so now you can go. Okay. So, in 2002, the International Criminal Court was established. Mm. And so, at the same time, 10 countries deposited their instruments of ratification of the treaty causing the ICC, or International Criminal Court, to trigger its entry. And now, with those 10 countries signed, there are 66 countries, which was the number needed for the treaty to, like, like enter into force or, like, be, like, yeah. you know... And it would be in in effect on July 1st, 2002. And interestingly, they can only prosecute, like, crimes committed on that date or after. So they can't do, like, like even if it was the day before, they wouldn't be able to, like, try that case. What? I know, that's really weird. Oh, my God. Okay, okay. Uh, you can go. Okay, so this is my last event for today's episode. Aw. Yeah. Okay. But in 1963, Soviet spy Kim Philby was caught working as a chief MI6 officer. Ooh. So, Kim Philby was born in Mbala, India, and is considered the most successful Soviet double agent in the Cold War. Wow. Yeah. 
So he graduated from the University of Cambridge and worked as a journalist until being recruited by someone named Guy Burgess, another mm-hmm. Soviet spy that was working in the MI6 section of the British intelligence. Oh, wow. Yeah. So he rose ranks quickly and even tipped off the two fellow Soviet spies that helped hire him. Uh, <gasps> and he tipped them off to the British officials officials and so yeah what? so he told him about the person that hired yeah. him, guy and um he was extremely good at keeping his identity hidden and found ways to get archived articles on the u.s and british relations wow and he befriended the archivist who worked at mi6 and had and he had access to files that were not in his areas because he was able to make friends with him and then, and then he befriended yeah him. <gasps> Wow. And he was under suspicion after both his fellow spies were, like, caught. Mm-hmm. After he tipped them off and then they were caught. Then they're like, how did you know? And mm-hmm. then yeah. he resigned shortly after, like, the allegations. Uh-huh. And he disappeared in January of 1964. Wow. And the British government sent an agent to keep an eye on him. Oh. Unfortunately, the agent got distracted by the fresh snow in the Lebanese <laughs> mountains, and Kim reappeared in Moscow six months later. Oh, my. So, the person that was trying to look for, like, supposed to keep an eye on him, he didn't do got distracted job. by snow. <laughs> um, he later wrote a book about his experiences working as a double agent and was awarded the Red Banner of Honor by the KGB and died in Russia in 1988. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's interesting. He's had a very interesting life. Yeah. And I feel very like action packed. It's a very movie type of life. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so this is uh, my last event. Aww. And in 2004, the Cassini spacecraft arrived at Saturn. Mm-hmm. And so this is the end of the spacecraft's journey in our solar system. But we got to take a tour of Saturn, its rings, and like a lot of other things. And it approached Saturn from below the ring plane where the main engine burn will begin after it has crossed above the ring, which is, like, pretty confusing. Yeah. But there's, like, a lot more to this. Like, it's, like, I saw, like, articles that were, like, 96 minutes and then, like, at 12.12 exactly it has to be, like, on top of this and blink. Mm -hmm. And then it looks really exhausting, but so I won't go over that. But I think the outcome for the photos were worth it. Yeah. And so, uh, we'll put those photos on Instagram. Yeah, we'll show... So, um, follow us on Instagram if you want to see them. Yep. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening to episode 5 on the What Happened Today in History podcast. If you enjoyed all the content in this episode, feel free to share it with friends or family. Make sure to follow us on Instagram to see exclusive photos, more content, and updates from us. You can find that in the description below. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, or suggestions, email us using the email linked below. We also have our sources linked there, too. We upload new episodes every other Thursday morning and have a historical-worthy day.